Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. I am Nick Vinden. I'm Caleb Brids. Nathan Strauss. Uh, last episode was a very Premier League-centered episode of our show. We talked a lot about Arsenal and a certain team in Liverpool who clinched their first Premier League title in 30 years. I might be still a little bit hungover from those championship celebrations. But the good news for me is that we're not going to be talking much about the Premier League or English football at all in this episode. In fact, we're going to be centering our discussions around the title races in both La Liga and Serie A, which are both heating up as we enter the final stretch of the domestic campaign in both Spain and Italy. But uh, let's talk about perhaps some of the biggest stories in world club soccer coming out of FC Barcelona right now. One of the biggest clubs in the world is going through a very public turmoil currently expressed by the fact that they drew to Celtivigo away from home over the weekend 2-2 leading to them only taking 24 points away out of a possible 48 points that they could have gained away from the camp new this season so their away form is pitiful and a shocking transfer has almost been completed uh Artur is being sent to the mighty Juventus in Turin for a strange Miralem Pjanic swap deal, which looks like it's going to be done just to balance the books at the Blagrana. Caleb Rose, what do you make of this very confusing week at FC Barcelona? Yeah, it, it has been an incredibly confusing week. And in a lot of ways, I feel like the Celta Vigo game symbolizes a lot of the ups and downs. I mean, as Nick mentioned, we have been utterly terrible away all year, both under Valverde and now under Setien. And you know, we, we actually started this game incredibly well, and we started it very positively, even in our team selection. It was nice to see Ricky Puig, who'd shown some flashes off the bench, getting the start, along with fellow La Masia youngster Ansu Fati, despite that meaning that, uh, you know, Griezmann and Braithwaite would have to be benched. And we, we started incredibly, incredibly hot. We were all over uh, this Celta Vigo team that featured several former Barcelona players, including... Uh, Rafinha, of course, as well as Dennis Suarez. PK had a nice header off the crossbar, and we were really swarming them. But something that's been an issue recently for our team is we literally just cannot hit the target. Uh, I think in our last game, Messi had like nine shots, none of which were on target. Today, having very few shots on target. In total, despite having like 18 shots, only two of them were on target, which happened to be both of our goals. And so I think we're just lacking a little bit of precision and then the goals that we ended up conceding were largely due to just terrible uh, play by Barcelona. I mean, the first goal that Fedor Smolov scored after being awful in the first half um, was Samuel Umtiti needlessly double marking a player in midfield that allowed um, Ospas to break through. And then it was a two-on-one that Smolov put away. And then in the 88th minute, of course, Iago Ospas with a... what really should be called a fantastic low free kick that just rolled into the goal. But it was like the first half, it really seemed like, wow, we're finally getting something together. Um, but then in the second half, we really just let ourselves go and stop believing. I think it's telling that, you know, we brought on Martin Braithwaite 
before Griezmann, which suggests that Griezmann is now in a lot of ways our fifth choice attacker, maybe even sixth choice once Dembele gets fit. Um, this team is just falling apart at the seams. Afterwards, it was reported that there was a big fight in the locker room. Suarez publicly blamed the coach um, for bad away form. And I don't know, this is a team that has kind of lacked direction all year. And Setien took a risk for the first time in this game. And it's really just completely backfired. And now we are probably going to lose the league. Coming back into uh, the restart, Barcelona were given a 68% chance of winning the league per 538. And that has now dropped to a 42% chance of winning the league with Real Madrid catapulting up from 32% to 58% in that timeline. So pretty much a 50-point swing between those two, which is reflective of how well Real Madrid have performed, but also how poorly Barcelona have performed. And, you know, looking at this transfer, this swap deal for between Arthur Mello and Miralem Pjanic, it really highlights some of the oddities about how Barcelona's squad is constructed, particularly in, in regards to the age bracket that I think many of the players fall into. I think you can really separate Barcelona into youngsters who aren't quite yet totally proven, like an Antu Fati or a Ricky Puig, or pe- players who are either at the peak or slightly past the peak of their career. I would include Jordi Alba, Messi, Pique, Suarez. Um, and then there are the players who don't quite fit in like Griezmann. Barcelona, I feel like they're trying to operate with this win now mentality trying to milk the last few years of Messi's greatness. But I think they're going about it in all the wrong ways. And I worry that they're gambling on their future by transferring out the the heir apparent to that number eight role in, in the midfield in uh, in Arthur for a player who's six years his senior uh, in Miralem Pjanic. And I really worry that between Barcelona's massive amount of debt that they have, as well as how old a number of their key players are becoming, that you know, two or three years from now, they're going to completely implode. And as much as I don't think, I, I really don't think Kike Setien is to blame for much of this at all. I think he came in and didn't really have high expectations for him to meet. And I don't think he's going to meet them anyways. A lot of this, and maybe all of this, is really incumbent on Mart- on Bartomeu and the board. Um, I think that they have chosen to build this squad in a, in a completely directionless manner. And I think that even the appointment of Setien was kind of rudderless. Caleb, what do you make of this Arthur to Juventus transfer, especially given the fact that this is someone who Messi has compared to Xavi and saying that he has Xavi-like capabilities and him and uh, Frankie Diong were set to make up the bedrock of the long-term future of the Barcelona midfield. What do you make of a, a transfer that kind of reeks of Barcelona maybe doing some finance control in the wake of COVID-19, in the wake of some serious debt issues, some public debt issues that have come out recently in terms of the Barcelona finances. Yeah, I mean, I think on the sporting side of things, it doesn't make sense because despite Arthur being... I, okay, Arthur has performed worse this season than last season, and he has not taken the requisite steps up. And this is especially when I think largely the Barcelona midfield as a whole has regressed, other than Frankie de Jong, who has been exactly the player uh, we expected that he would be when he came from Ajax. He hasn't performed as well. He fell out of favor under Valverde and also had some injury problems. He's fallen out of favor with Setien. And then I think, as you said, 
this just proved to be a convenient way to, and I forget exactly how the bookmaking works, but essentially it'll show up as a $60 million profit for both Barcelona and Juventus. And so I think a lot of this is Barcelona where kind of their hand was forced because we have had a lot of economic mismanagement for a long time and COVID has just probably exacerbated that and led that or laid that bare. Um, so it's not ideal because as Nathan said, it's never great to get rid of your up and coming 23 year old midfielder um, with Chavi like qualities for a very good midfielder in Muriel and Pjanic, who is just 30 though and slightly past it. And I think what I would have liked to see is instead some deal involving either Rakitic or Vidal, um, both of which who have been a little bit want away this entire year, both of which who are past their best. I can rationalize it, even though I don't think it's great for our long-term future. Uh, while that being said, it's not like we don't have a lot of good young midfielders around. I mean, Puig has been very good recently. I mean, Puig is the one who has beat out Arthur for a place in the squad. And then Alenia, you know, I think Alenia has proven that he might not be a world-class midfielder, um, but he could definitely be a dependable squad player. Um, I mean, Sergio Roberto can definitely step into the midfield, especially as Semedo has played well at right back, and then De Jong as well. So we do have a bunch of young midfielders, but I think it would have been nice to keep Arthur. I, I, I think it's also difficult from a Barcelona fan's perspective, just seeing how poorly... Barcelona's big name transfers have have panned out in the last like three and a half years. Like really since the Neymar money came in, Barcelona have pretty much blown through $450 million on Griezmann, Coutinho, and Dembele. And so even though a lot of their other transfers have hit, like Semedo and, and especially Frankie de Jong, it's hard to rationalize these sort of swap deals that even if they are for for the sake of of the books and for accounting purposes to to rationalize that this is what's forcing their hand when instead it's like uh mismanagement and maybe poor transfer policy over the past three years which we've touched upon in previous episodes as well right i mean i think we've actually bought very well in defense and midfield i think lenley and umtiti have both been great pickups at center back I think Semedo has been a good pickup at right back. Um, and I think Firpo has proven to be a good backup for Alba, probably better than Luca Dina was. Um, but you're right. We've spent a lot of money on forwards that just haven't worked at all. And I think that if you go back to, was it 2016 when Neymar left? Is that when he left? 2017. 2017 when Neymar left. I think pretty much all parties involved would agree that that was the wrong move. And by parties involved, I mean Barcelona and Neymar. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, I mean, but the question is, has it actually worked out for PSG? Because they were going to win the league regardless of if Neymar came. And considering they haven't won the Champions League, I'm not sure. And that he's been injured for the second half of every season. I'm not sure you could say it was totally worth it. Yeah, um, I was going to say he's barely made enough appearances on the pitch to be considered a profitable transfer. Yeah, so I, I mean, one, so may, maybe I'll even include PSG and say it probably wasn't worth it for anyone um, at the end of the day. And I think we've picked a lot of players that just don't fit. Dembele has proven to just not... A, he's just incredibly injury-prone, which you can't fully blame him for. Um, but he also has some attitude issues. He also just doesn't seem to take things as seriously as he should. Coutinho just is not actually a left-winger. And so we shouldn't have bought him as a left-winger. And then Griezmann has 
I think he's been past his prime for two years. I think he hit his prime pretty clearly when he was 26, and he's been regressing since then. And he just has never really played in a 4-3-3, and he's never really played as a main striker. And so he kind of doesn't really work that well with Messi. So a lot of our offensive problems do go back to that Neymar transfer. And I'm not really sure what the solution is. And I think that's a problem, especially as even though Suarez had a double yesterday, he has been very slow since coming back from injury, doesn't really seem to be able to have like to play a good 90 minutes of like high quality play all the time. Barcelona is timing out and we've tried to make the most of Messi's last few years, but we've really kind of embarrassingly let him down as we saw in the Champions League the past two years where we let up big leads in a first leg to get just completely trucked um, in the second. And so, I don't know, these are deep problems with the team, and I've never trusted Bartomeu as a steward of the club, and I definitely don't trust him going into what's going to be probably the most consequential summer um, in the last two decades. I think it's easy to say, and it's pretty clear to say, that there's been at least one or two baffling transfers every single window in the past maybe four transfer windows for Barcelona. I think of the Kevin Prince Boateng signing, uh, the Martin Braithwaite signing, obviously this is someone who has come in and kind of helped the club in what has been a dearth of attacking talent uh, for the club in 2020. But I think of the Douglas signing at right back. I think of some of the really more just really just bizarre and puzzling and off-brand transfers of Barcelona. Arturo Vidal being one of those who is still at the club. I think that was very much a bizarre move for Barca. Paulinho is one that springs to mind. I think Barcelona are kind of going through a win-now identity crisis. That is cu- That being coupled with a very obvious and clear dearth of finances and being stuck in a rut of debt surely can't help for trying to produce results immediately on the pitch. Um, we've seen that they're very reliant on Ansu Fati, who is only 17 years old. And while in the late 2000s, early 2010s, Perhaps there was a strong crop of La Masia graduates who could come forward and put on a display and put some goals in the back of the net for the first team. I think in the late 2010s, we've seen the decline of really promising first team prospects coming up from La Masia. Obviously, there are certain players like De La Fuente or Conrad, the American who has signed a long-term deal today with the club. But I think putting your faith in players like Fatih, who are only 17, and backing him over... 29-year-old world-class superstar and French World Cup winner Antoine Griezmann. I think that's sort of a puzzling decision, and especially just ruins the confidence of a player like Griezmann, who I think thrives on playing with momentum and playing with belief. Caleb, what do you think of the fact that Griezmann has been so kind of unceremoniously placed on the bench and thrown to the wayside in favor of of Fati and, and as you said, maybe even Dembele when he comes back to full fitness? I mean, to some extent, he just hasn't performed all that well. At, all, at any point this year. Why do you think that is? Because it's really interesting because this was a guy who just won the World Cup in 2018 and he's been scoring pretty consistently for his previous club at Atleti where he was a talisman. Yeah, I think the problem is is he's not he's not a dribbler, actually. Like his style of play is very much, he takes a few cute touches and makes a move and his movement is really kind of essential to him. But what Barcelona have always asked our wide players to do is to sort of, be ball carriers um and i think given that he isn't really a ball carrier and that messi really monopolizes a lot of the touches especially in a slightly withdrawn position from the attack he just doesn't really 
fit super well. And I think it hasn't helped that Suarez has been has declined pretty rapidly this year and has been injured. So they haven't really had a chance to work out a relationship. And I think we saw that in Barcelona's game against uh, Bill Bao also, where there were several times when Suarez could have played Griezmann in, but he either didn't trust him or just made a bad choice and took chances himself. So I think there's a style of play issue on top of a chemistry issue. Ansu Fati, meanwhile, um, despite being only 17, has shown that he's willing to take on a man He's willing to dribble, um, and I think that just works better for what we need from that left wing position. So I, I just think that I, I think we could have predicted that Griezmann wasn't going to perform. Nick, uh, going back to the point that you made a minute ago about relying on a seventeen-year-old, I think the solution to this team very easily could have been buying Lautaro Martinez, a player who's twenty-four years old, entering the prime of his career who's had what what now one and a half to two years of playing at a high level. But instead, they've just focused these transfers either on youth or on experience, but not really anyone who's uh, approaching the peak of their career. Because ideally, if they know that Messi is going to leave within the next five years, at I would say at the most, then you want a, a talisman who's going to be able to be at their peak in four or five years. And while I do think that like a player like Frankie de Jong is going to still be elite in that time, I don't think Griezmann is, especially if we consider the fact that it's likely that he did peak as like a 26 or 27-year-old. I guess with that point, Caleb, Nathan's already talked about Lotaro Martinez, who's been linked to Barca. It might, not, it might be a little bit hard to get him now, especially with COVID-19 and the finances and the Arthur deal kind of being indicative of where Barca stand in the transfer market. What do you think Barca should do to fill these attacking voids this summer? I know you said you're not confident in Bartomeu's approach in the market, but if you were running the club, who would you want to see uh, come through the doors? I would like a return to like Spanish players and rejuvenation of that connection. Um, and so if I were in charge, I would probably, and I don't think we can get all these players. So, so reasonably, I think we need to replace Suarez at striker because he is going to be 34 next year. and He's just not, he's not a top five striker in the world anymore, I don't think. Um, and we need a left winger. And so if I were in charge, I would sell Dembele, even for like 60 million, just like make some money, someone will take him. And then I would buy Mikel Oyarzabal. I would buy Latara Martinez. And I know this is unlikely now because he just made a transfer, but I would buy Danny Olmo. And I think Danny Olmo is the least likely just considering that Barcelona tried to get him and then refused to pay 40 million. They only wanted to pay like 30. So those who I, that's who I would buy. I think Lautaro, Messi has already very publicly said that he wants him. Um, he's Argentine. So there's that connection. And then Ayurta Ball, I think is has been very good for this Sociedad team for many years. In a, in a way, like Griezmann was, you know, like seven or eight years ago. He plays left wing and he knows La Liga. And I think what we need right now is somebody who can hit the ground running and who has space to grow. And I think he fits that profile very well. Yeah, and I think as Nathan mentioned, the most damning stat of all the statistics surrounding Barcelona is that Lionel Messi has just turned 33 years old. You can officially say that he's on the wrong side of 30 as a scary and crazy as that may sound and uh, the numbers haven't dried up quite yet but i think you can't keep relying on the mercurial messi for individual brilliance year in and year out anymore especially as he's starting to hit his uh 
what this is probably the twilight of his career, gents. He has 21 goals and 17 assists in 27 games in La Liga this year. Those are pretty insane statistics. I, I think the the problem is though he has played every minute since the restart. He's like the only player in the team I think, other than Ter Stegen and maybe PK, who has played every minute. And I think that's kind of the problem is like. It's just likely that a 33-year-old body might break, and that would just totally destroy our season. I'll throw out one more player who I think would be an interesting transfer. Adama Traore from Wolves. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And It sounds kind of silly, but you have to remember, I mean, he was a Barcelona youth player. He did get his start there. And at least on who scored, he is one of the highest-rated players in the Premier League this year. Um, and he has the kind of dynamic trip. Yeah, okay. On who scored, he is the second highest rated player in the Premier League after Kevin De Bruyne. That's insane. And he has four goals and nine assists. Well, I think the man could really, like, he is just such a direct player. I think he could really help Barca in just being a lot more direct and efficient going up the pitch. A lot of that's because he has 5.1 successful dribbles per game. And I think... Okay, yeah, I, I don't mean to spend a lot of time talking about Adama Traore, right? But I think that could be a wild card signing. You're certainly looking for a dribbler, Caleb Ritz, by the sounds of things. Yeah, I mean, and it's akin to, uh, it's akin to like when we bought Delafoe back, and we're hoping that he could be the one, and then you know we let him start in a Super Cup El Clasico game, and he looked like he had never progressed past like the juvenile A team. Oh, um, I remember that game. That was right after the sale of Neymar and Delafeo had some big shoes to fill. Oh, dude, it was terrible. The, he did he, not fill them. Let's just say that. He sweat all the gel out of his hair so fast, even in like the pregame tunnel. He was so nervous. Yeah. So so that's my last cheeky tra- transfer. Well, gents, we could sit here and play transfer Tinder with Barcelona all we want, but there is another country, another league that deserves our attention because it's a fascinating title race. Uh, between Juventus, Lazio, and Inter Milan and Serie A. I think Atalanta, surprisingly enough, the club based in Bergamo, the place most devastated by the coronavirus, I think we could say in Europe, where the biological bomb took place, uh, played spoiler, perhaps, to Lazio's title challenge, beating them 3-2 in their first game of the restart of Serie A. Gentlemen, what have you made of this... uh, this really, really tight, surprisingly, race in Serie A and the fact that Juventus have now jumped out four points ahead of a what was once a surging Lazio and Inter Milan. I, I think it, it's still no sure thing that Juve are going to come out on top of this lead, uh, this league rather. They have a four-point lead over Lazio um, and 538 gives them a chance in the 70s to win this league. Um, but that being said... Um, if Juve can beat Lazio in their head-to-head fixture that's coming up in, in three weeks, they'll pretty much uh, clinch the title. I think this Juve squad is just so obscenely deep that they're able to rotate pretty much whoever they want, whenever they want. They can even have Blaise Matuidi fill in as a left back, which they did the other day because of some injuries, and come out on top. Juve, like Bayern, as we've discussed before, uh, just have the luxury of signing so many players that they can really fill uh, any hole that appears in their squad. And of course, the goal-scoring heroics of Cristiano Ronaldo with 23 goals on the season. Yes, a lot of them have been penalties, like his penalty goal the other day. Um, but he has been, uh, again, a stellar player for them up front. Paulo Dybala scored a beautiful goal the other day. 
And of course, they still have a solid defensive core anchored by Matthias De Ligt, who's really become one of Europe's best defenders after a rocky first few weeks uh, with the old lady. So I do think Juve are going to come out on top of this league. Um, I just think their center midfield depth in particular is superb. But Lazio, if they can keep the pressure on, will have a genuine chance um, if they can beat them head to head in just a few weeks. Caleb, I think the problem that we're seeing is that no one else in Syria has the depth that Juventus have. I think we can see that Lazio are really struggling without the likes of even Lucas Leva picking things up in the middle of the park in center defensive midfield for Lazio. And I think an injury to one of a Cherby or a Mobile would really ruin the rest of their campaign. What, what do you think about just the gulf in talent between Juventus and the rest of the league? Obviously, we're seeing players like Ashley Young and Victor Moses being trotted out for third place Inter right now. So what, what do you think of kind of the goal from class? Yeah, I mean, and I think Juventus, you know, as I've talked about before, they have the best defense. They've relied on just being able to be flexible in their team and the experience in their squad to get points, despite the fact that I think Lazio, Inter, and Atalanta, to a lesser extent, have really sort of overperformed. I, I think, though, that there is a lack of offensive firepower in this team and I think that will only become more glaring as Ronaldo gets older he's what 35 now he's 35 oh um, my god yeah he's 35 so I like the man bun has uh, t- t- taken some years off the clock to definitely be honest. yeah definitely he's trying to fit in as more of a millennial um that's for sure since Ronaldo came Dibola's production has gone down he's slightly overrated because he only really scores world-class goals and so he scores a world-class goal like every few weeks and everyone's like, oh my God, Dibola, like like that insane free kick he had against Atletico Madrid in the Champions League earlier this year from like a zero degree angle. Um, so I think as Ronaldo's production goes down, as Higuain's production goes down, I mean, Bernadeschi has been poor in terms of output. Douglas Costa can't even get a look in. Juan Cuadrado is not really used as an offensive player anymore. I, I think there's kind of going to be questions about where the goals are coming from. And so I think that while they might squeak to the title this year, I think next year, if they don't make a transfer probably for a big-name striker, and if Inter Milan can hold on to Lautaro and add Hakimi, I think like Inter could easily vault uh, to the Scudetto title. I, I think that the past eight years of Juventus dominance has shown that the teams that are able to challenge them are those with extremely tight tactical setups. Thinking back to Napoli uh, two years ago, uh, and I, I really do think that Conte's Inter team absolutely can be those challengers, especially given that they're set to upgrade probably the most key position in his tactical setup. Obviously, Conte, one of the pioneers of the the three five two or or five three two, however you want to call it. Christian Eriksen has looked elite over the past three weeks, uh, and adding a young rising star with two years of top flight experience in Germany for only 40 million is just a fantastic piece of business for Conte's team. They're going to have one of the better strike partnerships in Europe between Lukaku and Lautaro with Ericsson playing in behind. They have a very solid center back pairing of De Vrij and uh, Skriniar. And of course, now with Hakimi as that right wing back. With their their 3-5-2, it's so flexible, so versatile, and they definitely could be poised to uh, provide Juve with the title challenge that 
might end up dethroning them for the first time since, what, 2010, 2011. I think Juve are a really interesting case study in which the manager, everyone's favorite Italian uncle, Maurizio Sarri, is really at odds with the club and the amount of talent that he has. You mentioned the last team to really challenge Juventus, Nathan, and that was led by Maurizio Sarri at Napoli, playing that really phenomenal Sarri ball, that really offensive, lightning-paced Italian brand of soccer that eventually got him the job at Chelsea, and he didn't do too well there, even though he won the Europa League at the end of the campaign before moving off to Turin. I, I think Sarri, the problem is... He's at the mercy of all of these ego-driven players at Juventus, and he's not really been able to implement Sarri Ball in the way that we've seen at smaller teams in terms of their stature in Napoli uh, and Empoli. I think Sarri's best role as a manager in Serie A is perhaps taking up a smaller club, a team with less sort of big names and big egos. I would see him really thriving at a place like Roma or at a place like Fiorentina, let's say that I would see him thriving at Juventus where Sarri Ball is kind of at the mercy of all of these superstar players who perhaps don't want to buy into his system. I mean, yeah, I kind of agree. I think he's he's better when he's playing up rather than playing with just like the expectation that they'll stroll to the league. And I mean, like, I don't think this Juventus team has much of an identity other than that. They can kind of play whomever they want, whenever they want. Yeah, because Caleb, they're kind of playing like it's not. It's to me like watching Juventus. It's not interesting because it doesn't even seem like Allegri's left in that like very pragmatic, dogmatic style of grinding out the result with the immense talent that they have. No real indication of style. No real indication of offensive flow. Like it just feels like Allegri is like still coaching, except sorry, is just the scapegoat. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they just kind of play who's available. Right, it's like, oh, Kadir is injured today. Fine, I guess. Oh, we got Aaron Ramsey on a free transfer. Sure, we'll give him a run out. Nice to see a Welshman in Syria every once in a while. Like, oh, like Alexandra is out. Like Blaise Matuidi, he can play wherever the hell he wants. Like, oh, Danilo's out. Good thing we bought Deshilio from AC Milan. Right, like, oh, like we don't want to play Buffon today. Like, sure, we can have Chesney in. Right, like, oh, Chiellini's out injured. Oh, we have Delic. Like, it, it's 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 almost like. Like, you don't need a person to manage this team. No, there's a reason that Ajax tore them apart over two legs last year. It's because I I really, truly believe that well-oiled systems function better than, you know, loose cohorts of extremely talented individuals. And that's why I think that Inter can be that sort of team next year. Because I think that unlike this year's Lazio team, Inter have better, like significantly better players. Players who are, if not as good as the Juventus cohort, almost as good. Uh, I think Lazio were doing a lot with a little. And Inter have the opportunity to take a similar system, one that's incredibly well-practiced, and also have you know very good to elite players. And I think that's what's going to need to happen in order to challenge uh, Juve at the top. And frankly... That's what happened with Dortmund back in uh, in their Champions League run uh, and Bundesliga win. It was a similar situation where they finally had the pieces that were that were needed uh, to sort of beef up their system. I think if you're Inter, you definitely need one more piece in central midfield and definitely one more wing back other than Hakimi. Hakimi is going to be good at covering one side, but those the wing backs that Inter have right now are certainly kind of a Frankenstein's monster at the position. You know, I look at Ashley Young, Antonio Kondreva, who's been converted from right winger 
uh, Victor Moses, who Conte sort of emergency brought in from his time at Chelsea, knowing that he could do a job. I think Hakimi is a phenomenal transfer. It's going to help him get pretty far. But I think they need another piece in the wingback slot just to be totally consistent in the Conte system. Because we saw in their return game that 3-3 draw at home to Sassuolo that there's certainly dents that can be made in the inter-squad as it is right now. And I think they have, they have a lot of injuries in Vecino being out, in Brozovic being out, and Stefano Sensi, who's been one of their best players in midfield, being consistently out during this campaign, that they need someone to come in who's going to be a consistent sort of sweeper in that midfield for Antonio Conte, like Conte was for the Chelsea team. Yeah, I mean, I'm more concerned about midfield than I am about wingbacks. And I think Conte has shown that his belief in his sort of three at the back system with two wingbacks and his understanding of how that works is so strong that he doesn't even need world-class players in those positions to win the league. I think of when he had Victor Moses as that player for Chelsea when they won. Um, And so in a lot of ways, I think having Hakimi, who's legitimately good, unlike Victor Moses, who sort of works in the system but is not an especially special player on his own, is just a massively added plus. And I just think that more than anything, more than even having Ashley Young as a strange, as you said, Frankenstein (laughs) uh, left wing back, they just need one more truly world-class center midfielder. In a lot of ways, I feel like Arthur going to uh, Inter would have made more sense. Um, Dude, that would have made perfect sense for yeah. Inter now that you bring Dude, that up. That honestly, then, it just, like, that has blown my mind. That is the per- well, that would have been the perfect transfer for Dude, them. And then you could have used it as a make-weight for Lataro. It would have made a lot of sense. Oh, Caleb Rhodes. <laughs> the rumor, the rumor. Caleb Bartomeo Rhodes. Please, no, that's a, that's disrespectful. <laughs> <laughs> the rumor that I've been seeing is it's going to end up being Coutinho to Inter. That makes perfect sense to you. I think the problem with Coutinho is that he he won't work in a two midfield pivot system in the in like the three four two one. You're gonna need to play him alongside Ericsson and drop one of Lotaru and Lukaku. Right, unless the plan is as Ericsson ages to drop him into like a more like a shuttler role rather than like a, a pure attack nah, role. Nah, nah. I, I don't know, I, man. I, I wouldn't trust his defensive prowess. I don't know. If I was Coutinho, I would take one look at. I would take one look at Alexis Sanchez and how he has like not really have a place. Or I would look at how um, Perisic was just like sacrificed by Conte pretty brutally. I don't think that makes sense as a move. I, I don't know where. Honestly, Coutinho is going to go to PSG. It makes, oh, absolutely. It makes he's going to go to PSG to or he's going to go to... I saw today that like Lester have been sniffing around <laughs> Coutinho. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the Braj, the Braj knows uh, <laughs> the small, the little oh, Brazilian. God, that'd be so sad. But I, I don't, I don't buy Coutinho to Inter. I don't think it makes sense in Conte's system, and I don't foresee Conte shifting around his system to make space for someone like Coutinho, who has really regressed both personally and sort of in other people's estimation um, in the past two years. Dude, winning the league, watching Liverpool win the league, I've thought a lot about Coutinho. I know we weren't going to talk about that. It was going to be the anti-Premier League episode, and I know we were sort of derailed from that a little bit in the past minute or so, but I'm going to just quickly say this. Watching Liverpool win the league, has just shown that like sometimes you do need to just like dispense of a really amazing player in order to progress further as a club. And I think Coutinho was sort of like, as Caleb, you said, as Parasis was a sacrifice for Conte. Coutinho was the sacrifice for Klopp. But that's neither here 
nor there. Gentlemen, we have one more team to discuss today, and that is the team that has scored a whole bucket load of goals, 78 Serie A goals. They're the champions of Bergamo right now as they recover from the coronavirus, as I previously said. I'm talking about Atalanta, a team that is still in the Champions League after absolutely smacking Valencia both home and away. And they're a team that recently came up trumps against the closest challengers to Juventus in Lazio, beating them 3-2. Guys, what have you made of this just kind of stunning offensive unit in Atalanta? Talk about a system working to perfection. They're just such a fun team to watch. Uh, and really, sort of out of the blue, they have become one of the, the most explosive teams in Europe. They have the, the biggest goal difference in Serie A right now. They've scored 78 league goals. Like, that's just crazy. And who would have thought that it would be Papu Gomez and Duvan Zupata leading the line? You know, like, this team has taken a bunch of, like, Chelsea low knees and random people who they've picked up from, like, the Eredivisie and turned them into, you know, a, a very solid Serie A team. And frankly, the fact is they're still in the Champions League. And while I doubt that they have the ability of going all the way, if there were ever to be a format, a single leg format favors them the most that it ever will. Yeah, I mean, what's very interesting about this team is that it's not Italian at all. There are, what, five Italian players on the team, maybe? Like, this is an incredibly international team. I mean, Ilicic, Slovakian, Duvan Zapata and Luis Muriel, who are their second top scorers with 13, are Colombian. Then they got Gozens, who is German. Gomez, who's obviously Argentinian. Pasajic. Otto Darun, who are Dutch. Right. They got Pasajic, who is Croatian. They got some Brazilians and Rafael Toloi. They got a Ukrainian and Ruslan Malinovsky. Like, this is a Timothy very... Castan, who is Belgian. Yeah, and I think that kind of gets to... Uh, name the point a little bit, which is that it, it's it's a sort of strangely cobbled together squad that is just working really, really well in a way that I don't think I it kind of reminds me a little bit of like Malaga circa 2012, 2013. But the difference being that it's not like somebody bought this club and is pumping a bunch of money in. It's like, no, they just kind of collected these players and it just worked incredibly, incredibly well. And I don't really know how to explain it. Right? Like, this is the best we've seen Muriel play in years after kind of underperforming at Sevilla. Um, Papu Gomez has been good for this team since they had another good Argentine player who was kind of underrated, German Dennis, um, in sort of the mid-2010s. But yeah, I don't really know how to explain their success because I don't think that their team is as good as they play um, but it just kind of works together as a unit um, and you kind of get the sense that they're just going to ride this momentum as far as it'll take them yeah and it's not like Gian Piero Gasparini who's their coach is new to the Serie A game he's a 62 year old coach who's managed Atalanta since uh, June of 2016 and his previous stint at a big club in Inter only lasted until September of his first season in charge so he's not had a lot of success on the big stages of Serie A and this is Atalanta's first foray into the Champions League as a club. And I think you guys hit on something really interesting with like listing out all those players, all three of us. And it's that like Atalanta, of all the teams in Serie A who can maybe compete with Juventus' depth, have a rotational option in each of their key positions. If one of their wingbacks is injured, they can bring on Castagna. If one of their strikers goes down, goes down they can bring on Muriel. So they have a little bit of flexibility in their system, which I think really helps in terms of 
freshening things up when he needs you. Playing a three at the back with flying wingbacks can often be exhausting, but they've shown that it can also be overpowering by scoring, as Nathan said, 78 goals. Yeah, as we're recording, 78 goals. They're currently drawing right now with Udinese. But uh, I think that game against Lazio and their games where they just... the fir- Their last game in Serie A before COVID was a 7-2 drubbing of Lecce. So they certainly are an extremely entertaining team to watch, but also I think an extremely organized team and one that has options coming off the bench if they need to. Right, and I think that's best exemplified just looking at how many minutes each player has played in Serie A this year. So Ilicic has the 11th most minutes of any player. Duven Zapata has the 12th, and Luis Muriel has the 15th. So I think, I mean, Papu Gomez has the second most on the team, so he's somewhat irreplaceable. But I think in terms of who's really scoring the goals at the end of the day, they're really rotating those players, and that, I think, keeps them fresh in a way that a lot of other teams that might have more limited resources can't. And, and speaking of Luis Muriel, Luis Muriel, as of 20 seconds ago, just scored a free kick. Giving oh, well, there you go. Giving Atalanta the lead, sending them to 57 points, one point behind Inter, although Inter do have a game in hand. What, what Atalanta really reminded me of is like if any of Sevilla's teams from the Unai Emery era were able to like transfer that form into the league, right? It's like a team built of like bargain pickups and free transfers and sort of an eclectic group of players with minimal domestic talent that have just totally overachieved all at the same time. And of course, part of the reason that I think that is because of the Sevilla products that are on this team today um, in Muriel. But, uh, you know, it's they certainly are an intriguing team to watch, and probably they're this year's lovable underdog in the Champions League as well. Well, it's probably like that aspect combined with a, if all these random players that Chelsea buys when they're like 18 all suddenly had their best season <laughs> simultaneously. And I yeah. say that because of the people like Mario Pisayic who are on this team as well. Like, it would, it would make total sense. Fuck, what's that uh, that Dutch guy who's been on Chelsea's... Marco Van Ginkel? Okay, like, it, like if you had told me just, like, offhands, like, oh, yeah, Marco Van Ginkel has been tearing it up for Atalanta this year, I'd be like, makes sense. <laughs> I think he still plays for Chelsea. I mean, he's think, I think he's injured. He does. He's still there. No, but my point is, dude, if you told me that, like, Joshua McEachern was playing for Atalanta this year, I would be like, yes, that also makes sense to me. Um, so I think it's, I, I think that was a good point, Nathan, about if Sevilla played like they play in the Europa League in the league, mixed with a bunch of rando midfielders suddenly playing, like, at what people expected, playing at their highest possible level at the exact same time. But gents, as we finish our discussion about Serie A, I, 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 I just want to pose this hypothetical real quick. As Nathan was talking about, it is an abbreviated format for the Champions League. Atalanta are already in the quarterfinals. They are the form team in Serie A right now in terms of flowing football and offensive innovation. How crazy would it be? Just hear me out. Just hear me out. How crazy would it be if Atalanta from Bergamo were to win the Champions League in 2020. Surely it would be football one, coronavirus nil in that case, gents. I think that it would rank it would rank below Leicester winning the Premier League in terms of how much it would surprise me. Because I think that given the 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 one-legged tie and sort of mini tournament 
almost World Cup style tournament uh, that's going to be taking place in Lisbon in August, which I'm sure that we will get to preview uh, at a later date. I think it, it will favor the smaller teams with momentum, by which I mean they'll have more of a chance to do so. But I mean, I would personally love to see Atalanta make a serious run at things, maybe see them go up against one of the bigger sides that have some defensive frailties because we we all know that they're capable of scoring goals. And although they haven't necessarily had the most difficult path so far, they definitely had the easiest of the group stage uh, opponents. And then, of course, they drew the easiest team from in that in the round of 16. Uh, I definitely think that they're capable of maybe pulling off a surprise upset. Yeah, I mean, like I could totally see Atalanta beating Atleti. I could totally see Atlanta beating Leipzig. I I have a harder time seeing them beat PSG or Man City or Real Madrid or Bayern, Chelsea or Barcelona. Dude, Atalanta versus PSG, that'd probably be like the highest scoring tie in the history of the Champions League. Dude, that'd be a great game. I hope they get matched up against PSG. I think that'd be the most fun matchup. I would pop the popcorn and watch that. Gentlemen, that's probably going to be our show for the day. But before we do, I, I know I said we weren't going to talk about English football at all, but the FA Cup semifinal draw has just been made, and I want to get Nathan's reaction. Nathan, Arsenal at Wembley will be playing Manchester City. <laughs> I mean, so this is the same matchup that uh, happened the last time Arsenal won the FA Cup two years ago, and Arsenal were able to beat them in extra time. Again, I think as with any time you play a Manchester City or a Liverpool, uh, the odds are going to be heavily weighted against you. Um, I don't think that Arsenal have the quality to compete with City on paper, um, but I do think that Arsenal have historically had a knack for pulling the rabbit out of the hat at Wembley. Arsenal are, of course, the most decorated side in FA Cup history. There's something about playing in that stadium, although, of course, it'll be without fans that really gets this Arsenal team going. And so while I do think that Man City are the favorites, especially given that they they have no incentive to rotate whatsoever for this game, I would not count out Arsenal. But of course, it's sort of a no-lose situation if you're an Arsenal fan, because when you go into a game against City with low expectations, you either are pleasantly surprised or aptly disappointed. I don't know, man. I think Arsenal have also traditionally gotten it up from Man City in recent years and I don't think this will be any different as Man City potentially look to shut the door on European football for Arsenal Football Club this season. Not to end this episode on a sour note for Arsenal fans, we hope that you've enjoyed our sort of non-English episode of Corner Kick. I've been Nick Vinden, Caleb Rhodes, Nathan Strauss. Wash your hands. Up Atalanta. We will see you all next time.